Hi, guys. Man, Redeemer, I miss you. It's been only a few weeks, but man, it feels like so much longer. Uh, Life has been different lately, and not being able to see your face and give you a hug and, you know, sing together alongside of one another has just been um, unexpectedly difficult. I miss you. Uh, I hope that this format helps you to facilitate worship with your family. Uh, This is not a season to step away from worship. This is a season to draw near. And I hope that this, uh, that the uh, songs that Gary is sending and the the sermons that we're sending out on Sunday mornings is a true help to your family. Um, and, uh, And I'm praying for you and your family that that this distressing season would draw you nearer to God in hope for a better kingdom. So I think the best way to start is to pray. So if you wouldn't mind praying with me. Father, only by your Spirit can we see your Scriptures, really see them, understand them and be impacted by them. Only by your spirit will our heart be softened and our eyes be opened to the beauty and the meaning and the force of your words. Lord, I ask that you would do a good work this morning. I ask that you would teach us the meaning of your scriptures and that you would draw us near to you in the midst of distress. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So there's this book called Cod. Uh, I didn't say God. I said Cod, like the fish. It's a book by a guy named Mark Kurlansky, who's a historian and a journalist. Um, Now, Mark Kurlansky has this really unique way about writing world histories. And what he does is he basically follows a commodity like salt or codfish. And he, t- he traces the history of Western civilization based on how they responded and related to this commodity. So in, so in this book, Cod, he starts in the 13th century uh, and he traces the history of, of Europe from the old world to the new world and how communities developed. And he does it all by telling the story of codfish. And I think that's neat and noteworthy, but the reason I bring it up this morning is that every chapter begins with a recipe. A recipe. How they prepared cod in this particular culture in this particular century. So as you're reading about Norwegian commerce in the 13th century, you can open to a recipe that you can like set up next to your oven and, and, and you can actually cook cod the way they ate cod back then. I like this a lot. I think it encourages emulation. Behind it is something like the notion that we're not always evolving for the better as a civilization. Things have changed, but some things were worth keeping. And sometimes those things that were worth keeping have faded into the distance. Now, as you're preparing cod the way a 16th century Irishman would have prepared cod... Maybe that becomes your favorite way to prepare cod and all of a sudden something that was lost to history is now 
redeemed, in a sense. Now that touches on something important. You can bring to history tools like observation tools or analytical tools. Um, And we often do that. We often observe history. But we are also on some level called to emulate history. There's this notion of observation versus emulation that is significant to the way we read the scriptures. Just like history, the scriptures record history, right? It's all true. (laughs) And as the scriptures record history, you are bringing all the tools of observation to that passage, almost always. In fact, it's our bread and butter of the Old Testament history texts. We, we say, well, what was happening then? How does this cultural uh, scenario influence the history of Israel? How does it influence uh, the rise and fall of, of royal houses? How does it influence specific characters like David or, or Solomon? We observe in the way that all historians observe history. But especially with the scriptures, we're also called to emulate on some level. Uh, Most passages in the scriptures have aspects of emulation involved. We are actually being called to mirror our behavior or our disposition to some aspect of this passage. Which means that we're not just called to bring the tools of observation, but we're also called to bring the tools of emulation to most passages in the Bible. Now, the thing about emulation or imitation is that it's not always clear exactly what we're supposed to be imitating. There are passages in the Old Testament texts that are are difficult. You're sort of trying to draw lines. Well, this is teaching us what happened, and this is teaching us how to behave, right? Um, and so there, there's, there's scholarly discourse, there's, there's conversations academically all the time unfolding about, well, this particular passage, are we supposed to imitate the behavior in it or not, right? And so it's tricky, and not all passages are simple in this way, with one big exception. The Psalms. The Psalms were written to imitate. The Psalms were written to emulate. You're always called to emulate the Psalms. You're not always called to emulate David's behavior. You're not always called to emulate Abraham's behavior. God forbid, because sometimes we're observing sin. But the Psalms were written so that you would learn how to pray and think about God and sing praises to God. From beginning to end, the Psalms were crafted to to frame a reference for us, to teach us how to relate to God and how to pray to God and how to praise God. Always, you're called to emulate the Psalms. You're never called to merely observe You should observe, but that's just the beginning. 
um, I'm not just, this is not my gut instinct here. I'm not just guessing that the Psalms were meant to be observed. For one thing, at the subheading of a lot of Psalms, it says, sing this to the tune of this song, right? Or it says, written for the choir master, which at the very least means that David wrote this song so that a whole choir could sing it and sing it to God in the ears and eyes of the people of Israel. It was written to emulate. But even beyond that, I want you to turn with me to, um, turn with me to Colossians 3, verse 16. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let me read it to you. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And what does that look like? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What does it look like, according to Paul, what does it look like to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Well, one major aspect is the singing of psalms. He's talking about the psalms that we read in our Bible. All right, turn again to Ephesians 5, verse 17. Ephesians 5, verse 17. Paul says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? It looks like this. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, together with all the apostles, never once intended for you to merely observe the Psalms. The Psalms were written so that you would emulate them, so that you would imitate them. They teach you how to think and how to speak and how to pray and how to praise. The Psalms enrich our lives. They teach us, among other things, how to walk in the Spirit in moments of desperation. They teach us how to stir one another's hope in God and His promises. They teach us how to speak to God when we're weak or when we're tired or when we're suffering or even when we're joyful. And nowhere is this dynamic so clear as in the, as in the life and songs of David. So we left the story of David not long ago in the midst of the Absalom trial, right? The son of David takes the throne and casts David out of the kingdom. And David leaves the promised land. And we know how that story ends because it's a huge expression of the victory of Christ. But, but I want to draw near to this text and, and, and focus on the true desperation of David's circumstances. All right? I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel verse 15. 2nd, I'm sorry, verse chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15 verse 1. I'm going to read it to you. 
Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. See, this passage unfolds with aspect after aspect of the crumbling situation of David. David's situation is getting, going from bad to worse. And this first step, this first glimpse into this crumbling situation is Absalom, the, the traitor son of David, is starting to woo the hearts of Israel and he's winning them. Now skip down to verse 9. It says, But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithabel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. See, the situation has evolved from merely Absalom stealing the the hearts of Israel to now Absalom is stealing the very throne from David. That thing which God gave David, God himself, has now been stolen away from him because of this pretender king. All right, keep reading. 2 Samuel 15, verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. This is Ahithophel, the closest advisor of David. And all of a sudden you realize that not only has Absalom stolen the hearts of the men of Israel, but he's also stolen the kingdom from David and he's stolen David's closest advisor. Things are just crumbling and step by step we're seeing this terrifying situation unfold. David is literally fleeing the promised land for fear of his life and finding out as he goes that his closest advisors have, tra- have become traitors. Keep reading. Turn to 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. There came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. 
And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into your hand or into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, David, for you are a man of blood. It isn't enough that David's very son won the hearts of David's people and it isn't enough that David's throne was ripped from his, from his house. It isn't enough that, that David lost his closest advisors, but now the very people who rejoiced over his ascension to the throne are mocking his name. Keep reading. 2 Samuel 16, verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my own life's, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. You can see David in this desperate moment wavering, asking the question, am I still blessed by God or am I cursed by him? Because this certainly looks a lot like God's curse. I've lost my son and I've lost the people given to me and I've lost the throne handed to me. I've lost my closest advisors and my people are cursing my name. Perhaps this is God's curse. Perhaps I no longer reside within the covenant blessings. And if that weren't enough, pick it up in 2 Samuel 17, verse 11. Absalom's advisor, Hushai, says to Absalom, the pretender king, gather all Israel to you from Dan to Beersheba, as many as the sand by the sea for multitude. And that you go into battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place. Who? David. We shall come upon David in some place where David is to be found. And we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring that city to stones. And will drag that into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. You just overheard Absalom, the pretender king's advisors, say, rally all of the soldiers of Israel, every single one of them, and hunt down the king, David. And when they find them, David and his men, they will destroy them. And if he's hiding in a city, we'll tear that city apart because we're going to kill David and we're going to kill his men. And Absalom said, that's a good idea. So it's not just that 
David's son has stolen the heart of David's people. And it's not just that David's son has stolen the throne of Israel. And it's, it's, and it's not merely that David, David's son has stolen his closest advisors. And it's, it's not even merely that, that David's people who once rejoiced over him are now mocking him. And maybe it's not even hard enough that he's questioning whether or not he still dwells within the covenant blessings of God. If God still looks kindly on him. But now we hear that tens of thousands of Israel's soldiers are chasing after David. Literally hunting him down. David is weary with weeping. He has lost his family. He has lost his nation. He has lost his throne. He has lost his closest allies. And he is being mocked and chased out of the promised land by murderous hordes. David, the man after God's heart, is questioning the very nature of God's relationship to him because everything is going so poorly. And this is the situation within which David writes Psalm 3. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 3. I'm going to read the whole thing and then we're going to take it in parts. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Now I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Hmm. Can you imagine? In the midst of such terror, such distress, crying out these words, You see, Psalm 3 teaches us how to pray in scary seasons. Teaches us how to pray in terrifying seasons. Like this one. This is a scary season. And this prayer is for you right now. In the midst of a pandemic. This prayer was written so that you'd know how to pray right now. So what I want to do today is I want to break it down. I want to break down this prayer into a recipe. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a recipe for your prayers in the wilderness. You could just jot this recipe down and 
follow step by step the scripture's prescription for how to plead with God when you're terrified. So if you're taking notes, go ahead and write down step one of this recipe. One cup brutal honesty. Reread with me the first paragraph of this prayer. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many rise against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for God in him. The gospel, guys, leaves no room for mere optimism. Notice something. David is not casting his situation in a positive light. He's not. How many are my foes? He doesn't know. That's how many. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. That isn't hyperbole. He isn't exaggerating the nature of his situation. There are literally tens of thousands of people hunting him down. And everybody's murmuring amongst themselves. He was once blessed by God, but look, now he's cursed. David begins this prayer by honestly, openly describing the terrifying scenario that's unfolding before his eyes. And that's how you should pray too. Look, I want to address something here because this is my instinct. My wife hears this from me all the time. Something goes bad, right? And my first thought is, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. This is just panic. That's not the biblical prescription for handling terror. The biblical prescription for handling terror is to say, oh no, we have no hope except in God. You should never apologize for reflecting honestly on your situation. It is what God is calling you to do. Things are bad right now. They're bad. I've never lived through a season like this in my life. The world is terrified. Most people in the whole world are staying at home. The economy has shaken, right? People are getting sick with this new thing and everybody's scared. We get reports every day of the deaths. The Bible does not call you to say, Lord, I'm sure things are fine. In the grand scheme, this is not a big deal. No. The Bible calls for you to honestly reflect on the terror before you and to realize that you have no hope except in God. God is your only hope to save you from this terror. That's step one. You want to pray to God and deal honestly and biblically with this scenario. With your current situation, you be honest. Strip from your vocabulary mere optimism. I feel like we're more Stoics or more humanists than we are Christians when we talk about the problems in the world. The Bible reflects on the problems in the world with gravity, and so should we. Step two. You've already dumped your one cup of 
brutal honesty into the bowl, go ahead and add two tablespoons of God's saturated memories. Listen to, uh, listen to David's words. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I want you to pay attention to two significant shifts that have just occurred in this passage. David removes his gaze from the tens of thousands of enemies that are hunting him down and he shifts to the one God. Like his his attention just shifted from the massive problem the innumerable issues before him to the one God who is his only hope. But that's not the only shift. David shifts his attention from the present to the past. Listen to it. He was speaking in the present tense. Many are rising right now, rising against me. Many are saying of my soul right now, there is no salvation for God in him. For him and God. Every, every reflection to this point has been present tense. Right now, this is what's happening right now. But then you see this shift. I cried, past tense. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. David says, you are a shield, O Lord. But on what basis does he make that claim? On what basis does he have to claim that the Lord is right now a shield for him? The past. He's thinking about how God has saved him in the past. When I have cried out to you, you have delivered me. That's how I know. That's how I know you're my shield. You must force your attention away from the present danger toward the God who has saved you, who has delivered you, who has rescued you time and again from destruction. We're such a a bookish people. We think about logic and theology and apologetics and all that stuff is great, but I fear that we've lost the brilliant tool to fight the schemes of the devil that is our own testimony of God's good work. How do I know God is my shield right now? Because I remember what I used to be. I remember who I used to be. I remembered all of my wickedness. I remember all the times I should have been dead in my sin. But God then, back then, He rescued me. And He has been rescuing me every single day, further delivering me from my own sin. The past teaches me that God is my shield. Step three, you got your prayer bowl, this is a cup of brutal honesty, two tablespoons of God's saturated memories. Step three, three teaspoons of taking nothing for granted. Listen to David's words. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. 
You see that? Did you, did you see that? Do you notice what David just did here? Against the backdrop of David, of God's past care, God's past deliverance, he pays careful attention to what's happening right now. I slept. Last night I slept. Even, even though I was surrounded by my enemies, I slept and the Lord kept me. I woke again because the Lord was sustaining me. And see, David knows. He knows that every good gift, every single good gift comes from God. And he clings to that evidence. Some would say that scant evidence. That right here in the midst of this terrifying scenario, I, I, I'm still sleeping. The Lord still woke me up. He clings to that evidence. That right now, right here evidence that God has not abandoned him. Yes, it will help to reflect on God's past grace. But oh, a balm for the suffering heart to gaze upon God's present grace. Did you eat today? Did you wake up this morning? Did you watch your child laugh yesterday afternoon? Did you receive a text message from your brother or sister in Christ asking you how you were doing? Take nothing for granted. Those are God's gifts. Every good gift is evidence of God's continuing work, God's sustaining power, God's patient deliverance. How do you anchor your soul in the the midst of a distressing, terrifying world? You admit the problem, and then you look back on God's past grace, and you look carefully And you pay attention to God's present grace. Step four. You got your one cup brutal honesty, two tablespoons God's saturated memories, three teaspoons of taking nothing for granted. And now you're going to dash in four grams of gospel math. Listen to David. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So what just happened here, I think is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. David had forced himself to strip away his gaze from from the hordes, the murderous hordes who are chasing after him. and And he forces himself to reflect on his past, right? His God-saturated past. Like, I remember he delivered me. I remember when I cried out to him, he delivered me. And then he turns from that past to note God's grace in the right now. God's grace in the present. And then he does some gospel math to establish confidence in God's future grace. If God delivered me when I cried out to him back then, and God is carefully sustaining me right now, then I can be confident that he will rescue me from my present distress. It's basic logic. (laughs) Evidence of God's 
past grace plus evidence of God's present grace equals confidence in God's future grace. When times are desperate and you're terrified, do some gospel math. Look back. See what God has done then. Pay careful attention to what God is doing now. And add it up. A plus B equals C. If God is at work then, and he's at work now, then he will continue this good work until the day of Christ. That's why David can say, I won't be afraid. I'm remembering now. I remember that that God has delivered me and that God is currently working with me. And so I can be confident that God will save me from this present distress. Now, all of that was a foundation. We're just getting started. You've got your brutal honesty and your reflections on past grace and your, your present grace. And, and you've got your gospel math, confidently hoping in the future grace to come. And all of that's a foundation. Go ahead and add five cups of pleading with God for justice. Listen to David's words. Arise, O Lord. Save me, oh my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. David is desperate. But he turns from that desperation to remember God's grace in the past and to note God's grace in the present. And he does some gospel math to establish God's grace in the future. But all of that is laying a foundation for this Plea, arise, Lord, on this evidence, you are at work, arise. Save me, oh my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. So here's the thing, when we are confident in the grace of God, past, present, and future, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and plead for mercy and help in time of need. And that's what David is doing. I want you to hear me. It's not enough to be confident that God is work. It's not enough to be confident that God is at work and that God is working to rescue his people and that God has delivered you and that God is presently caring for you and that God will deliver you from this present distress sometime in the future. Faithfulness doesn't stop at cognitive recognition of God's will and God's ability. Faithfulness cries out. Faithfulness runs to the throne. Faithfulness asks for the good things that God has promised on the evidence of God's character. Sometimes people try to follow the logical ends of God's sovereignty and God's promises and then claim that prayer is unnecessary. He knows what I need and he's promised he will give it. Look, that's not Christianity. God acts by means of his people's prayers. They they rise to his throne room like incense. God has chosen this way. All through the scriptures, God is provoked to display his justice and to display his righteousness and to display his faithfulness to the covenant by means of his people's prayers. So cry out, 
cry out desperately for God's rescue from this present distress. It is good that you can set your hope in God's grace, past, present, and future. It is good. But let that confidence drive you to the throne of grace and plea for justice and plea for salvation and plea for a kingdom with no pandemics. Because that's how God decides to act on his people's behalf, is by their prayers. And lastly, David adds a sprinkle of gospel confidence. Listen, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Notice he doesn't say your blessings be on me. Notice he doesn't say my salvation belongs to the Lord. He says salvation belongs to the Lord. He says your blessings be on your people. David is now confidently pleading with the Lord to act on his behalf. But his amen, his expression of confidence in God's willingness to do it is founded upon God's faithfulness to establish his forever purpose for his people. It's founded upon God's promise of a kingdom that never ends. It's founded upon God's promise that he will rescue his people and he will establish a kingdom with them and they will never have suffering or pain again. As you plead with the Lord, you must be okay with the Lord's decision not to give you exactly what you want. As we approach God confident in His past and present and future grace, we approach Him with open hands like Jesus. Not my will, but Your will. And we approach Him knowing that His will may mean suffering for us. It may mean suffering for our loved ones. It may mean death. But the reason we can walk away from that prayer confident in God's goodness and God's character and God's power is because we remember that God's promise to rescue his people, it's sure, it's perfect, it was finished in Christ and it will be realized in Christ's kingdom. My hope is not in my family's safety from Coronavirus. My hope is in the redemption of God's people in the coming kingdom. And that's how David ends. He spent a lot of time focusing on this particular scenario within which he's struggling. But he steps back at the final moment to say, I trust you, Lord, because salvation belongs to you. And your blessing is on your people forever. What I want to do now is I'm going to close and I'm going to pray this prayer except in our current distress. And when you flip this video off, I want you to do the same thing with your family. Whatever that thing is that's most distressing to you, I promise it's perhaps slightly less terrifying than 
Thousands of hordes chasing you down for murder. And yet, in that treachery and in that terror, in that fear and in that panic and in that doubt, David cries out to God with these words. Whatever it is that's terrifying you right now, be it your family's safety or the future of the economy or whether or not you're going to have a job next week, run to the Lord with this recipe. Be honest about your present distress. It's not going to scare God. He doesn't have any need for your mere optimism. Be honest about your fears, about the situation you're in right now. And pivot from that honesty to a reflection on God's past grace in your life. Remember what He's done. Remember those memorial stones in your background. I was this, and then, boom, you changed me. All of a sudden, I was different. All of a sudden, I wasn't chasing after the world like I used to. All of a sudden, I was free. And then, confident of God's past grace, remember that God is always at work, giving you glimpses of his sustaining power, of his gentle love. Pay careful attention to your present and remember that he's at work in your life, even right now. And once you're confident of God's past grace and you're confident of God's present grace, do some gospel math. If God was working then and God is working now, then surely I can be confident in his future grace for me. Your confidence in the grace of God on your behalf is your foundation to plea that he would act. And you should. God chooses to work by means of his people's prayers. Plead with him for help and safety. Plead with him that the gospel would be richly proclaimed in this terrifying environment. Plead that cures for viruses would be found. Plead with the Lord. And be okay if he chooses not to give you exactly what you want knowing that he has promised a kingdom free of illness, free of fear, and that promise is sure and finished in Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, the the world is rocked People are scared. It seems like every family in the world has closed the doors and is hiding. I'm afraid. I'm afraid for my family's health. I'm afraid for the safety of my brothers and sisters, the Redeemer. I'm afraid for the financial disaster that could be looming. My enemies are many. Your grace 
however, has taught me to hope. You have been at work in my life. I know that when I cried out to you, you delivered me. By the Spirit's good work, by your grace and mercy, because of the redemption of Christ, when I cried out for rescue, you were there. And every step of the way, you've been there. I was saved, and I am being saved. You are constantly teaching me to flee sin, to hope in your kingdom. I I see in every season of my past, I see your hand at work. Lord, I also note your present grace. You are kind to me right now. Your people have been reaching out to me to make sure we're okay. We have eaten and we have slept and we have woken again. We've enjoyed one another's company within my family and that is all gifts, your gifts. And your past work and your present work teaches me to hope that you are continuing the good work. You are, you will see me into the image of Christ. I am confident in your grace through Christ and so I can confidently approach your throne and ask that this thing, this COVID-19, this coronavirus nightmare that has unfolded on the world, I ask that you would take it away. I ask that you would heal. I ask that you would apply the minds of brilliant doctors to create cures. I ask that this would be a distant memory in the near future. I ask that you would restore jobs and financial stability. I ask that in the midst of this terror, you would strengthen your heart. You, the people, you, I would ask that you would strengthen the hearts of your people. You would give us bold confidence in the gospel. And Lord, I ask that you would deliver us someday into a better kingdom where there will be neither illness or tear or suffering, pain. And Lord, whether or not I get what I want for my family and for my church, for our economy, whether or not you choose to move in this way, I set my hope in the kingdom you've promised and secured it by the blood of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, we look to your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.